Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith. I'm your host, and I'm very excited about the guest we have today, Adam Coleman. Adam is a member of our Unsafe Space book club. It's where I first met him, and you, some of you in chat may recognize him from the chat. Uh, Adam, if you don't know him, is an author and the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. He was born in, born in Detroit, but raised in a variety of states throughout the Americas. He writes openly about his personal struggles with fatherlessness, homelessness, and masculinity. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Uh, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thank you for being so patient with me, yeah. uh, getting you on the show. And uh, for anybody who's not aware, they can pick up a copy of your book here. White <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Yeah. That's not the one. Here we go. This one. It's called Black Victim to Black Victor by Adam Coleman. And they can find out more info on your website, which is wrongspeak.net. Um, can you tell us, I'll be right up front, our book list, as you know, it's getting pretty long. We haven't yeah. read it yet, but I decided I'd rather just talk to you about the book now instead of waiting until we get a chance to read it. And um, can you tell me a little bit about what people can expect from the book, what compelled you to write it, and what the response has been putting it out? All right. So I'll start with what got me started to write it. Um, I, I actually wanted to write a book for a number of years. Um, I would say maybe a couple of years before I actually uh, started writing, um, I was making a personal change in my life and, and I wanted to leave something behind for my son. That was a really important thing for me. And I was like, well, maybe a book, but what, what should I write about? What, what would be important? Um, I had an idea about writing a book about questions, um, like questioning things and stuff like that, but I couldn't, I had like zero direction basically. And, and I, I I didn't really write anything, but um, when George Floyd happened, uh, when that situation occurred, I decided to uh, sit down maybe a couple months after the situation and start writing. Um, initially, I just wanted to express myself by going on other forums, not on like a Facebook or anything like that. Um, I rarely post much on Facebook or at least stuff that's like, uh, how I feel about certain things or just random nonsense. Cause I, I like deeper discussions um, and I, I want productive conversations. So I Social went- Social media is not known for that. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> but I, I did find more free speech oriented places where you could have back and forth, <coughs> excuse me. And I got a lot of encouragement to write more often. And uh, like people reach out to me privately to say, you should, you should write more. And it just hit me. I was like, maybe this is what I can write about. Maybe this is the book for me to write about. Uh, so I literally just started making chapters about what do I see wrong within Black culture. And that's literally how I started. Um, it took me about nine, nine to 10 months to finish, um, to basically get to the point where I was ready to publish. Uh, so I published on my own. And um, I'm proud of the product that came out of it. Can you tell me a little bit about the this line at the very beginning of your book? Am I actually broken? And if I am broken, can I be fixed? Yeah, so uh, the title Black Victim to Black Victor means a bunch of different things. Um, you know, while I am making social commentary about Black Americans, 
about losing the victim mindset and becoming victors within America, I'm also talking about personal struggle as well. Um, so the black victim was also me at one point and how I was viewing the world, how I felt broken. Uh, I talk about me experiencing depression, thoughts of suicide, and how I was able to overcome those things and become the black victor in the story. So um, uh, you asked before, what could someone expect from the book? Um, you can expect a lot of things, very open, very honest. Um, I like to mix and mingle certain concepts. So, for example, one of the chapters is called Feminism and Fatherhood. Um, two things that don't necessarily go together, but, um, but there's a reason why I call it that and the links between it. Um, so I do a lot of that, um, but the book is also much of my life story or very pivotal moments within my life. Uh, my transition from being a liberal uh, to someone who's just somewhere in the middle, um, you know, politically, I'm an independent, um, socially conservative. Uh, I, that's, that's as much classification I like going by these days. But mm -hmm. um, I, although I feel more and more every day, I'm looking at what's happening with the government, I feel more and more libertarian, but uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Although, yeah. if you're listening to Carter, like I am, yeah. I can't help but be pushed in more of a, I'd say, like critical position, critical of the government. Yeah, just a healthy skepticism about the yeah. government and their decision making and how they approach things. Um, but yeah, as far as the context of the book, um, it's a mixture of stories, real like real stories. Uh, you know, I talk about growing up without my father in my life. Um, you know what it felt like on a very personal level, um, experiencing homelessness a couple times when I was a kid, um, being homeless once as an adult. Um, we moved around a lot. I lived in four states before I was 18. And then I moved to Tennessee uh, for about a year and came back. So I lived in five states in my life. Um, and just a lot of personal struggle. Um, and talking about, even though I went through those things, here was my mindset. Here's how I overcame it. But I'm the reason of me talking about my story is because I am making connections to a greater issue within Black culture. And the number one issue is the broken family. Um, literally, uh, throughout the time of me writing the book, I, I kept researching just different things. And everything that I saw that was a social problem when it came to Black Americans always came back to the family. So, you know, I talk about morality um, and then I link it to talking about, well, how do we view morality? Who, who is the figure within the household to set some sort of authority? You know, who do, you know, who, who's the person within the household traditionally that sets the boundaries and how we, how we view the world. And that's the father figure, or at least a healthy father figure. Um, so I, I talk about, just that one person being missing. And we already know the, st the stats, you know, it's somewhere between 65, 70% of black households, uh, single parent home. That's not to say that the father isn't involved within the life, but it makes things far more difficult. And the man has less influence in the child's development by not living there with them and seeing them on a daily basis, even though they may be involved. That, that part is extremely important. 
Um, and also just the viewpoint of men in general and how people have kind of shifted, you know, the importance of men. Um, yeah. You know, I, I say how we've allowed the government to um, change our outlook on men to becoming a biweekly check. You know, yeah. we're just this provider thing who, who's supposed to give money and there's no other importance from a father figure, uh, you know, um, and as a father now and had to learn how to become a father, how to become a man while raising a boy and how to teach him to become something better than I was, it's difficult. It was a struggle, um, but I see the importance and I see how much influence I have on him. And one of the proudest things was having my son, who's now 15, read my book and then tell me wow. his impact on it. Um, and having him understand what I went through on a very deeper level. So he knew that I didn't grow up without my father, uh, that I grew up without my father. But um, for me to go into such detail as to, for example, the death of my father, what it meant to me um, and, and all these different things. So he really got a look into his father's life, which a lot of kids don't really get. A lot of parents kind of shield their feelings and shield their experiences, and they don't really get to learn that side or learn their, the vulnerability from their parents. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that is so beautiful that you yeah. started writing it as something to leave your son and something for him to read and, and connect with you like it's a very intimate thing to to share your whole story in that way and yeah. so commendable it makes me think of people you know writing their diaries you know for their kids or writing you know something that they're leaving them of this is what it was like for me during my yeah. time um can you talk a little bit about uh you were talking about the, the ways in which culture is changing in regards to men in general and starting <laughs> to look at men as oh excuse me Oh, you're fine. <laughs> Starting to look at men as unnecessary or simply a paycheck. Can you talk about that? And then also, what are the cultural? Because because I agree with you. I think there. I think the culture is moving in a direction of denigrating masculinity and the importance of having a father in the home. Yeah. Um, can you talk about how that's? Is that is that a message that is uh, that is and is being targeted towards the black community specifically? Because I think it's a, a message at large, but I think there's also an aspect of it that's specifically being targeted at Black people. Yes. Uh, so one thing to kind of be aware of uh, for yourself and the people who might be, uh, or people who are watching, anytime there is some sort of feminist rhetoric that is being promoted, maybe it's like a new, uh, a new form of the feminist movement that's being uh, promoted, nine times out of 10, they also include Black women. Um, it's very purposefully done. So the, the example that I use in the book is the body positivity movement. They almost always include black women in that. And, and whether black women realize it or not, they're being used as part of the feminist movement. And the very downside of the body, positive, body uh, positivity movement is that it's taking advantage of a really big issue that exists within the black community, especially for black women. Um, black women are the most overweight population in the country. Um, 
I want to say it's well over half of them are considered obese. I believe it's somewhere between uh, somewhere around 70% of them are considered overweight. So overwhelmingly, this is a very big problem. Um, they are also the largest demographic uh, percentage wise when it comes to diabetes. So the body positivity movement is effectively lending to the death of a lot of black women if they really subscribe to this way of thinking, which a lot of them do. Um, and that to me, I always bring back to the family and the role of the father because the father is supposed to set boundaries. Um, I find myself always looking at people and, and their, their psychology and how they move about life and their boundaries. So for example, someone who's very promiscuous has no sexual boundaries. So anybody I hear say I'm pansexual, that means they have zero sexual boundaries. They mm -hmm. have no discrimination. Love is love, sounds nice, but what they're telling you is that they have no sexual boundaries. And when you find out about their life, nine times out of 10, there's no healthy father in their life to help set boundaries within their life. So for women, especially, not setting some sort of boundaries makes everything open, which means sexually you can be very open, which means diet-wise you can be very open. No one's telling you otherwise. There is no boundaries. Whatever you want to do is however you want to move it. You know, so when you see women who have um, multiple baby daddies and stuff like that, that's not, there's no boundaries as far as family planning. So you're, what you're watching is a society of people, whether it be men or women in the black community, not growing up with that boundary setting father figure. And mm -hmm. that is something that I've become very aware of. Um, and the feminist movement is taking advantage of that. Yeah. Can you, I can already hear, sometimes I still have an internal SJW in my head and I can already <laughs> hear them hating what you're saying, but uh, especially, why, why is it? I think they would probably say, there's no difference between men and women. Why do you need a man to set boundaries? So wh well, what, what would be your answer to that? Well, they won't like my answer. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for one, men and women aren't equal. We're different. Um, but it doesn't mean that we are, one is more valuable than the other. We're just clearly different. I have my strengths. Um, and my strengths uh, could be something that is extremely beneficial for the opposite sex. Women have their strengths and it's extremely beneficial to the opposite sex. When we come together, we're equally beneficial within our relationship. That's why I strongly believe that men and women are far better together than we are apart. And what I'm seeing is the family being pulled apart. Um, so as far as the, the inner SJW, we're not equal. And so my strength is, as a father figure is, is a role of authority and boundary setter within the family. I'm just more naturally equipped to do that. Um, you know, they talk about rough and tumble play. That is something that is just instinctual. Like, even though I grew up without my father, when I had my son, one of the first things I tried to do with him was tickle him, right? I wanted to have that, uh, that connection with him so we can play. It was just instinctual. Even though I didn't experience that with my father, I just knew to do it. 
I wasn't looking online to how to become a father. Yeah. It was something that just felt natural for me to do. And for women, that's not natural for them to want to do that unless they're purposely going out of their way to do that. They're more risk adverse when it comes to how they set boundaries and do certain things. Um, whereas men, men set very, very strong boundaries for boys and girls. Um, so it's the nurturing side versus the uh, boundary setting side. Um, th that's something that one, generally speaking, is much better than the other. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, you were making me think with your very non-SJW thoughts about the <laughs> roles of men and women, you're making me think of, do you remember, now I think you're probably younger than me, and this is before my time anyway, but maybe you mm -hmm. heard it when you were a kid like I did. Do you remember the OJ song, Family Reunion? Yeah. You do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> There's one part where they're talking about the family. where they It was like one of those old ballads where they, they, would, um, they would then start talking over the music. And I had to look up the lyrics because I couldn't remember. But he, they start talking about uh, the family. Listen to this. They said... You know, the family is the solution to the world's problems today. Now let's take a look at the family. In the family, the father is like the head, the leader, the director, not domineering, but showing love, guidance mm -hmm. for everyone else in the family. Now, if we could all get the fathers of the world to stand up and be fathers, that would be great. Then we have mothers who are the right arm of the father. They're supposed to do the cooking, raise the children, do the sewing, and help the father to guide and direct. Then there's the son the son, most sons are like imitations of their father. So we're going back against father and he's guiding in the right way. The son is definitely going to be all right. Then we have the daughter watching her mother because sooner or later she's going to be a mother and she'll have her own sons and daughters. And then, and then so this is in a song that from a very popular <laughs> band, the OJs, right? Yeah. Just a few generations ago, if they were to put that song out today with those lyrics, do you think there would be an outrage? <laughs> Like, yeah, absolutely. But they're yeah. they're spot on when it the way they're describing the family, the family structure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the key word that I heard you say was leader, right? Yeah. And and this is the part that I think a lot of people misunderstand. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce another word you didn't say: submission. That's a very mm -hmm. that's a very toxic word to use because it's it's been mis misappropriated to mean something else. So submission is voluntary. Yeah. Yes. You know, you know, so if if I'm the leader, let's say it's we're not talking about a, a household relationship. Let's say you go to work and you have your boss, right? And you believe your boss has your best interests at heart. You like working there. He's going to lead the way for a path to success for your your position and for the rest of the company. So you're submitting to your boss's leadership. That's essentially all it is. And the more, the better your boss leads you, the better everybody is. It's a win-win, uh, you know, recipe. We've made submission sound like uh, servitude, like I'm, I'm forcing, or you know, women are being forced to, you know, live by side by side and and do certain things for men. But that's not the role of submission. That's not leadership. That's a bad leader. If your leader is forcing you to do things um, and is leading you down the wrong path, that's not a good leader and he shouldn't be in leadership. So 
leadership is mutually beneficial. Um, you know, I'm I'm currently engaged, and we'll be getting married in September. Congratulations! And thank you. Um, and we we've had these discussions because our viewpoints, both of us have have molded and changed. Um, you know, four years ago, she didn't have the same viewpoints. As a matter of fact, she's uh, also a former Democrat. So <laughs> there's a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of us. But we've had these discussions about, um, you know, for example, if I'm the one who makes all the money, are you okay with that? And we've had to have these discussions. And her gut reaction was no, but we had to talk about it. Like, well, why wouldn't you trust me, you know, to, to provide? And she had to really question why she had to feel that way. So now we're to the point, if I was fortunate enough to be the breadwinner and she didn't have to work, then she is fine with that. You know, and we had to discuss because she tells me, you're the leader of the household. Every time I trusted in you, we've gone through a path of success. Every time that she's feeling some sort of emotional anguish, I've been the voice of reason and the calm and we've been able to discuss it and we're able to keep moving forward. So she trusts in my leadership and she is submitting to me as a man to take us to a better place. The better I do as a man, the better she does. It's mutually beneficial. Um, so yeah, those are, you saying leadership made me think of that. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because like your fiance and you, you know my background, but anyone who's new to this show may not. I was in the social justice part of the left for 20 years and I left that part of the left, which took quite a while. It's not a short process to do that, to leave that, to have that awakening. And um, my opinions now are a lot different than they were in 2015. What is that? Six years ago. Yeah. So, uh, but I came to some of the same conclusions as you and as your fiance, it's sort of, I didn't, I didn't have a good understanding of what submission meant. And, and actually I didn't have a good understanding of what submission meant until I found God and mm -hmm. until I found, you know, and also when I got sober and went to with some AA meetings and I had always thought of submission as being this sort of the way that the way that culture teaches us about that word. And I think they're wrong. And the way that feminism taught me about that word is, is this thing that's demanded by force. And as you're saying, it's not what it is at all. It's a voluntary thing. Um, in AA, there's the idea of a person saying, I am admitting that I have no power over whatever this thing is. In the case of AA, it's about alcohol. But people use AA for a variety of things that, that, that they find themselves a slave to. Right. And so they admit, they admit that they have no power over it. And then you submit to a higher power. And, and that just basically means you need help with this thing because you don't have the power alone to fight right. it. And, and that was the first time I started to really understand what submission actually means. And in a relationship, you're reminding me of, I read, I read something a few years ago that started to change my mind about relationships too. I think feminism does a disservice. The current version of mm -hmm. feminism, the social justice version of feminism does a disservice to women by telling us that there are no differences between us and men on average, which is not true. Mm -hmm. um, and telling us that in a relationship um, that equality means there's no leader. That was the message I got. Uh, that's wrong. If you, you need in, within a partnership, 
I've now come to believe, like you're saying, you need one person who's the leader. It doesn't mean that you're not equal, equally valuable or equally, um, you know, in equal standing. It means you have different roles to play. And in every relationship, it may not work out that it's the man. I don't, I'm not, you know, it's not, there, there may be a case where a woman is better suited for that role, but on average, I think men come equipped with, you know, more of the characteristics needed for that role. And so um, I'm going to get myself in a lot of hot water, Adam, by <laughs> saying all of this. <laughs> this is more oh. candid than I've been about, about the, the kind of stuff like within family, family dynamics in that role. But yeah, I've seen too many, I butted heads in relationships before because we're both trying to lead. And when you, it, when you disagree, if you don't already have an understanding of who the leader is, then you're just going to be pulling each other apart. And, um, yeah. and I, I think it, I think it's beneficial to have a leader. So have you, having written this book, uh, have you received any pushback? What kind of, what kind of criticisms has the book received? Um, that's a good question. I would say that there's, there's one review that I read online that um, actually made me sort of laugh, uh, but I appreciated it. They basically said the book started off great until they made it to the feminism chapter. And then they felt that I was blaming everything on black women and that I sounded like I had like mommy issues and stuff like that. But then they said, the rest of the book was great. So it was literally that one chapter. Um, anytime you criticize or try to you know, put some sort of accountability on women, um, they, they misinterpret that as being hateful or resentful of women, mm-hmm. um, where I'm actually trying to be fair uh, because what that person ignored was the chapter just before it where I'm completely lambasting my father and the uh, black men who are just like my father for not taking hold of the responsibility of their children and letting them go at the wayside. So I'm being a very equal opportunity uh, critiquer throughout the, throughout the book. Um, but funny enough, they gave me three stars. Um, so I'll take that. At least they were trying to be fair. Yeah. About, well, I liked this much of it and not this much. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, so how do you, you said that you, you've become, you were a liberal, now you've become pretty socially conservative and maybe, maybe libertarian. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe, what was your, did you have a waking up moment of leaving the left? Like some people do, like I did, or, or what was that like for you? So there were, there were a few pivotal moments. Uh, I put probably the most pivotal um, in the book. So um, I started traveling probably about, was it four or five years ago? I don't know. COVID makes everything seem, <laughs> Yes. Uh, I'm losing track of time, but it, w- it was around the same time frame where I was trying to rediscover myself, figure myself out. So I started traveling and actually kind of accidentally, I started solo traveling and I just started bouncing around Europe. Um, and the other thing I started doing was learning German. So um, I actually been to Germany, it was six times um, in, a, in like a three year span, something like that, okay. um, and made friends out there. But I started bouncing around Europe. Uh, I think I'm at 10 countries um, so far. COVID messed that up, but. <laughs> yeah. For my husband uh, too, he's actually, he speaks German. You guys should meet. And he spent a lot of time there. Yeah. But, but the traveling, you're right. It's out for now. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, but I, I started bouncing around and there was one particular time I was in Madrid. And this is, this is one of those things where I feel like God got involved in my life because um, there was a game that I'm a big Chelsea fan. So Chelsea was playing Manchester United. I don't know if that means anything to you. It's okay. Um, soccer? Yes, there was a big soccer okay. game. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is being in Madrid, you have to go to an Irish pub to watch an English game. So I was like looking for an Irish <laughs> pub. I went into a random Irish pub and was watching the game. The game was over and I was ready to leave. It went from being a beautiful, nice day to torrential downpour, just like that. And I didn't have an umbrella, nothing. Um, so I was like, well, there's more games on. I'll just watch more games until it clears up. And so I got up and I just sat next to this guy and he was with his, uh, his, his girlfriend. And we just started talking. He was uh, a British citizen. Uh, he's from Manchester. And his, his girlfriend's from Spain. And he'd been living in Spain for a number of years. So we just started having conversation. And we exchanged information. We just kept in contact. And we were just talking very cordially for months. Uh, we would talk all the time, basically like on a weekly basis. And this was right around Brexit. And he had said to me basically like he's for Brexit. And I was like, really? Because I thought Brexit was for these like racist British people. And what he told me almost verbatim was the United States would never allow for an outside governing body to tell it what to do. And I said, that makes perfect sense. And when he said that to me, because I already had a good faith in him, I didn't suspect him of being racist or mean or anything like that. Yeah. He, I took what he said into account and he was being very logical about what he was saying. So I gave him benefit of the doubt. So I really took into consideration what he was saying. Um, and he actually introduced me to Thomas Sowell. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I never, funny enough, I've, I've been somewhat into politics and I never heard of Thomas Sowell. Um, so that kind of shows you the wall of information that you're not able to hear about conservatives when you're on the left side. Um, so all these conservative thinkers or libertarian thinkers, you know, the Milton Friedmans, you know, uh, these guys, you don't really get to hear about them when you're in that left bubble to consider their information as well as, as the left information that you're taking in. So I kind of, that was one of those things that kind of led me down that path. Uh, there was also another book I'm going to probably mess up the title of it, but I think it's called Resistance at Any Cost or All Costs, something like that. Um, but that book basically talked about all these different events that happened during the Trump administration. And they were events that I never even knew about, details that I never knew about. And I was like, man, I watched the news every single day and I didn't know these particular details. And that really opened up my eyes to realize that the media is full of it. Uh, you know, <laughs> that that I'm being like, at least give me this information so I can decide for myself what to take from it. But, yes. you know, but they're they're completely slanting things and leaving things out and painting things a certain way. So, you know, those that was a big that was a big thing about having my eyes open about looking at Donald Trump for who he actually is. He's just a guy. He's imperfect. Right. He's not the next Hitler. He's not or any of this nonsense that people want to 
create out of him. And so I just started seeing him for that. And in many ways, he's kind of funny. Um, yes. <laughs> I came to the same conclusion. I was sort of, I believed, even after he won, I was one of those people who cried the night he won in 2016. I believed yeah. a demagogue had just been elected. I believed he was possibly the next, you know, Hitler or what have you. And once I had my eyes opened and I had my own story about how that happened, once I got rid of that prejudice and the things I'd been told to believe about him and just viewed him as a flawed human mm -hmm. with its own specific flaws, yeah. then I started to be able to appreciate how funny he is. Yeah. 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 He's, he's uh, what I call the most honest liar uh, because he, <laughs> He lies about stuff you shouldn't be lying about. Like it's, it was a dumb lie, and but he's really honest about stuff he shouldn't be honest about. Um, <laughs> so I, like I always what? thought that was funny. Like he'll, he'll. Um, I remember one time he was saying, "They're not going to like it that I'm telling this truth." The, you know, he was talking about the deep state, and he was like, he, and he was going into detail about something. I can't remember who it was, and I'm like, I don't think he should be saying that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then he'll lie about something stupid, like, um, like, uh, the Clorox thing where it, it was, a. I understand what he was trying to say. People blew it out of proportion. And then he, he was like, I meant that as a joke. It's like, why would you say that? Yeah, like, don't just say don't yeah. say that you, you knew like, uh, yeah. So yeah, he would just lie about dumb stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, so it, also to your point about this guy in the in the bar telling you about Thomas Sowell, I had I had a similar thing happen to me is when I started to open my mind a little mm -hmm. to, to let my mind out of the prison I'd put it in and this, this sort of this leftist echo chamber I'd been in. Then I had a conservative friend who mentioned Thomas Sowell to me and I'd never even heard of him yeah. like you. And it blew my mind. Then I realized what other great thinkers have I not even heard of? Because I walled myself off into this uh, information bubble, this misinformation bubble in some ways where they're feeding me a narrative on how, what to believe and not, not just giving me information and letting me make up my own mind, you know? Um, yeah. And you know what? Um, I'll also attribute, I used to watch Joe Rogan pretty frequently. And even though I, I would consider myself a liberal, I still, thought in maybe the more traditional liberal principles of free speech and, mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So I, I was never a leftist, um, but I would watch Joe Rogan and them talking about the culture war. And I always thought it was interesting. And for the most part, I agreed with a lot of the things that were, that were going on that he was saying, and he's coming from a left perspective too. And so we were pretty much eye to eye. And what I'm finding is that a lot of liberals have shifted, right? They're, the 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 people that I used to think that were all about free speech had been told to now limit speech. Now there's hate speech. Uh, yes. Who gets to determine what's hate speech? Uh, why is there now all of a sudden hate speech? All these different principles that I used to believe were left-leaning principles had gone out the window. And it's funny because now conservatives sound like the old liberals in many yes. ways. And there's been like this weird shift um, in a lot of principles when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the traditional liberal. The traditional liberal is now a modern liberal 
who is on the edge of being a leftist, it feels like. Um, yeah. and, and now they have to go to, like people who are liberal now have to call themselves classical liberals. Mm -hmm. you, know, they, <laughs> you know, they have to put a, yeah. a special term on top like of it. Like me. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. That's why like, I, I'm somewhere in the middle um, when it comes to how I'm viewing the world. But this idea that, you know, I have to now say that there's more than two genders or that I have to play psychological games with people to make them feel better when I'm watching very unhealthy people act in very unhealthy ways. Um, you know, I was telling someone yesterday that if someone ever approaches me and tells me that they're non-binary, I know that they're unhealthy. Like it, it's just right off the bat. And, and there's so many triggers. It's not even like an ideolo ideological thing, right? It has more to do with, you can tell when someone is unhealthy, when someone is sick, there is something innate about someone who's sickly. It's like seeing someone who's anorexic, right? Yeah. Let's say you don't even know who they are. They're just walking past you. You know that they look sick. You know, there's something off with them. Uh, let's say if they look perfectly fine, but when they open their mouth, they're manic. You know something is off. It's the same kind of thing. And a lot of them are very manic, off balance. Um, they lack boundaries. The list keeps going and you're watching and watching them. And then, oh, another big one is that they overshare. Overshare yes. is a big red flag. Um, and so as someone who's very interested in human behavior and, and psychology, uh, I kind of touch upon some of this stuff in the book from a psychological and behavioral standpoint. But when you, when you watch these people and we're supposed to put them in a class that is oppressed, when really they're just oppressing themselves, they have mental issues. Um, just classically speaking, they, that's why I, I find it very troubling when we have therapists who are affirming people instead of challenging their thought yes. process. Um, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, we are effectively giving people who are unstable a microphone and, and putting them in a special class and they're not being told to get better. We're not helping them to get better. You know, it we're reminds validating me of, what's right, wrong with them. Right, we're validating what's wrong with them. It reminds me, you always hear um, trans rights activists talk about how uh, the suicide rate is really high for trans men and women, right? But they don't talk about um, even after they transition, it's still high. And the reason being is because they have mental issues, that they have underlying issues that they're, it's not being resolved. It doesn't matter if they're transitioning for a lot of them or if they're not transitioning. That's not the trigger for them to get better. In many ways, it makes their life more difficult, more challenging, because they're not mentally stable enough to handle it. There's a reason why the old school trans, uh, transsexuals would go through all of these rigorous steps, all these psych psychological steps before they would have sex changes, for example. Yeah. They did that for a reason. They didn't want to affirm someone who is off balance mentally completely and not understanding that the process they're going through is irreversible. Are you ready for what is about to occur? And now these kids can go and and do whatever, whatever they want, and they're never being challenged. And uh, I know you've talked to people who have who tried to transition back, or at least in the process, detransitioning. And you see how difficult their life is, 
and they're like, why didn't anyone challenge me? I was a teenager, you know. So overall, the there is a really big issue when it comes to mental health. For me, it's not even an ideological, you know, sense, uh, or even like a, a faith sense. I don't even have to go to that that end. I'm looking from a health sense. I'm looking at from a stability sense. People who are off balance, you can tell. You can tell mm -hmm. when they're off balance, and they 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 don't even see it themselves. So no. that's how you know that something is wrong. Yeah. There's also, there's an interesting stat that it shocked me when I first heard it because I, I used to buy into a lot of the narratives from the social justice left. And mm -hmm. one of those narratives is, is the one you mentioned, which is that transgender people as a group on average have a higher suicide rate than people who are not transgender because of oppression. Like a lot of things, they, they they start with a premise and they work backwards. They don't get there scientifically. They just say it must be oppression. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't hold weight. When I heard the statistic about um, if you look at race, for example, they say, well, the oppressed group is black people. The oppressor group is white people. If their theory were to hold water, then you would expect to see a higher suicide rate among black people than white people. And you don't You see a higher suicide rate among white people. Uh, same for men and women. There's a higher suicide rate among men than women. So yeah. this whole idea, like, well, if there's a higher suicide rate in a group, it must be because of oppression. It just, it doesn't hold water. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of those um, assumptions and statistics. Um, and it's funny that you, you had mentioned how they use certain numbers to try and justify things. And like you said, they start with the premise of oppression and they work their way backwards. And what I want to try and normalize is calling that conspiracy theories, right? Because that's how conspiracy theorists see the world. Uh, look at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I'm going to write an article soon. I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. Um, it's going to be called The Black Intellectuals Are the Conspiracy Theorists of the Black Community. Because they start with the premise of white supremacy and they work their way backwards. You know, they're looking for everything that links back. And we always think, sometimes we think that conspiracy theorists, we see like the classic picture with, you know, stuff on the wall and there's, yeah. you know, rope going to one thing <laughs> to another. And we think that they're doing it from a logical fashion, but really they're doing it from a backwards motion. They have a premise. They're just trying to find the connection going backwards. They're not starting from a realistic standpoint and trying to figure out and disprove what they're saying and how things are going. So it, to me, we have a lot of conspiracy theorists that are running around, they just don't call themselves that. Yes. And so they use certain numbers to validate their conspiracies or they use historical points. Uh, you know, if we talk about black Americans, we use simplistic historical moments throughout American history as validation for white supremacy. We make false equivalencies to make validation for white supremacies. The, the conclusion is always white supremacy. So I can go around and say, well, white supremacy existed with slavery and those people were held in bondage. So what's just like slavery? Um, prison. Prison is just like slavery because those people are held in bondage. And disproportionately, it's more black people. So let's put our, let's, you know, put our, our wall on our wall, we have the, the paper and the link and everything. And, and now that is our conspiracy theory. 
that mm -hmm. the 13th Amendment was specifically set up for Black people to keep us in bondage. And here we are in 2021, and it's the same as 18 whatever. You know, so it it's that conspiracy theory that keeps going back and forth. And we don't call it what it is. We don't call it from that. And I can I can disprove it. And I've even disproved myself on certain things when I was thinking about it and I was measuring it up and certain things didn't hold water with what I used to think. But I've come to the point, especially sitting down for nine months, writing and researching, of finding that if you work from a different way that, that's more logical, and that's why I always keep coming back to the family. I'm actually not trying to be a conspiracy theorist and say everything is with the family and I'll show you by working backwards. I'm actually looking from a very logical standpoint. If the family is broken and people lack authority, and well, if they don't lack authority, they what what happens? They end up on the streets. They fight with cops. You know, they um, aren't good in school. Kids who lack authority don't respect authority figures, including the teachers and principals. You have all these things from from a natural authority figure within the home. It all makes sense. That's a very logical standpoint. And we don't do that. We always start with the premise of white supremacy, or at least the black intellectuals do. And now they're force feeding everybody to think like a conspiracy theorist within our schools with critical race theory. And I find the connection right there is theory. Everything is always a theory. And it's always a, a, you know, conspiratorial when it comes to white people. It's just like um, how we view Jim Crow laws, for example, is conspiratorial. Mm -hmm. We say white people held black people in bondage, right? And I say, no, the government enforced this. Or that, well, white people were in government. That'd be like if I said, well, all the Nazis in Germany were white. Yes, it's a white nation. It's a white majority nation. Of mm -hmm. course, the majority of the people who are in government are white. Same thing here in the United States. It's a white majority nation, especially back then. So yeah, the people who are in government were white. That's not the connecting factor. The connecting factor is that they were part of the elite class. The same connecting factor is that in, during slavery, poor white people, the rednecks living in the backwoods, didn't own slaves because they couldn't afford slaves. You're actually taking care of someone. They're your property, right? And it sounds bad to say, but if you see something as your property, you're going to try and take care of it somehow. At least you don't want it to die. So you have to feed it. You have to clothe it. You have to make sure that it is somewhat healthy. So you have to take care of your property. Only someone who have the economic means can do that. And generally speaking, that is someone who has higher economic means. So this idea that we have to punish all white people for the sins of the economic elite is extremely unfair. And we're feeding into cons the conspiracy theory that white people are our oppressors, no matter what. And it's that false link that we end up going backwards when we really should be going forwards and looking at who the real culprits are. So when I say I become more and more libertarian, it's because I recognize the involvement of the government when it comes to dividing white and black people. And yeah. I'll say one last thing when we talk about Jim Crow. Yeah. Jim Crow is not simply about oppressing black people. Jim Crow is equally oppressive to white people from the standpoint of how they view each other. So I'll, I'll give, a, a, give an example. When I'm in New Jersey, when the government said no more masks, people took off their masks, right? 
No one challenged it. If the government says everybody has to get a vaccine, people are going to start getting vaccine. If the government says whites have to eat here, blacks have to eat here, people are going to start doing that. You already yes. see what it looks like when it comes to the government saying vaccinated people can't go into restaurants or unvaccinated people can't go into restaurants. And you see how people see the other right off the bat. Imagine if this was a racial policy, right? Yeah. Why do you think people were so outraged? Because they set up their life around racial policies. They lived separately. They did everything separately. And it was enforced by the government. If white people just naturally hated black people, you don't need the government to enforce anything. It was much bigger and much more about social control than anything mm -hmm. else. It was about dividing the common people, the everyday people, the everyday person, and keeping us from seeing what we have in common versus uh, you know, looking at the people who are trying to reign it from above us. So for me, a lot of things come back to the government, the government's involvement, the elite, and the way that the elite have always been trying to have some sort of social manipulation uh, and they utilize black people to gain some sort of control. Yeah, that's amazing, Adam. Thank you for walking me through that. I never really thought about Jim Crow in that way before, but I agree with you. I have thought a lot recently about how the government now is doing everything they can to keep us divided. Yeah. And it's only in the past few years that I started to see that when it when it comes to politics, this whole are you Democrat? Are you Republican? You know, are you red? Are you blue? It doesn't really matter, but they have us believing that it matters. And then, and then once I saw that, I was able to see how they're doing it with race. Yeah. 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 It's the, it's the tribal triggers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having us see, having us find our tribe, you know, we are, we're tribal beings. There's no way of completely get, getting rid of that. Um, you know, when I go overseas and if I find another American, I'm like, hey, I'm from America too. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a tribal thing. Everybody does it to a degree. But what happens is when certain people understand that and they know how to trigger the tribe, they're the ones who are in control at that particular moment. Yes. That's, that is social manipulation at its finest. And, and those people, if they're nefarious, they're going to use it for nefarious reasons. Um, that's why it, it's much harder to get people to be uh, more, uh, have a cohesion. It's much harder to do that because you're blending the tribes. You know, you're, you're blending the lines between tribalism. And so when you say people should get along and not fight, people are always skeptical of who that person is. Why are you trying to have us disassociate ourselves from yeah. our tribe? And when I, as a black person, say that, it doesn't matter who I'm speaking with. I don't care if they're white or not. You know, I had somebody say, you know, me, with me giving interviews, well, you've been getting a lot of interviews and most of those people are white. And, you know, yeah. the, the, the message of division is- it's, it's there. It's there. It doesn't matter who I talk to. It doesn't matter if I speak in front of 200 white people. I really don't care because for one, I'm a Christian and we're all brothers and sisters. So I'll speak to my brothers and sisters as I see fit. And why are you making me look at a particular tribe? There's a reason why you're having me do that. And that's because you're trying to socially manipulate me. You're trying to make me feel bad and feel as though I'm a traitor to the tribe. Well, I'd much rather be on my own 
think for myself and not associate with any tribe if it means that I don't have to be manipulated by someone else's emotions or, you know, and try to trigger me into doing things that they want me to do and not for myself. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of social manipulation that I see happening, especially for black Americans. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's extremely troubling. Yeah. What do you think about the future? <laughs> what do you think <laughs> about where we're headed given, given the dystopia, I would say we find ourselves in now. And what do you um, think about specifically for black Americans? So the fact that myself and I've, and I've met other, if you want to call them black conservatives, um, heterodox, whatever you want to call them, the fact that we're out here and we're saying something, this didn't exist five years ago. Mm. You know, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, they were on an island of their own for many decades. And obviously there were black Republicans for a number of years, but they were always maligned and they were always appeared to be the most rare of a rare breed. There have been more and more people that are former Democrats, um, maybe rarely have, a, I've, I met one person who's black and lifelong Republican, but most of them are former Democrats. They, they grew up as Democrats, they woke up and they start seeing things in a different light. Some of them are still somewhat on the left, but they don't agree with all the things that are going on. So what I'm noticing is that people like Candace Owens, for example, you know, you hate her or love her, but the fact is that her saying something and being as loud as she is has made other black people say, I don't agree with most of what she says, but she makes a really good point here. And that's all it takes. All it takes is that they're getting a voice they're speaking out and people are finally listening. You know, I speak in a very particular way. Um, and I, I speak in a way where I, I try not to be inflammatory. I try not to be uh, supercharged or anything like that. I'm not in for shock value or anything like that. Um, and I do that purposefully because I want people to understand my perspective. I don't want to have, you know, tribal triggers and make you pick a side. I'm not on anybody's side. I'm, I choose for myself. I'm an independent. Uh, if if you want to see where I have some more association, I talk more with, with Republicans because mm -hmm. ideologically I have more in line with them today. But who knows in 10 years that could change? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. So I choose to be independent for myself, but I'll speak to anybody. And what I what I'm trying to do. And what I've actually, what I've already noticed is that by me speaking out and me writing this book, I've had more and more people of all different nationalities and from different countries reach out to me and appreciate what I have to say and that I am saying it. And I'm not worried about cancel culture. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. And the reason being is because, you know, I guess when you've been homeless, you, <laughs> you don't really care about losing your job or, or any of that other stuff. Not that I don't care, but um, I'm not letting that stop me. Yeah. You know, I'm not letting that um, prevent me from staying true to myself. And, and not for nothing, I got tired of other people speaking for me. I got tired of people saying black people and black men and making their narrative my narrative because it is far from. So I want to speak for myself. You know, I talk yeah. about black culture, but I'm not speaking for everybody. 
I'm talking about things that exist. And I want people to think for themselves. If a shoe fits, wear it. But if it doesn't, that's fine. Um, so I, I want to I be that person who encourages other people to speak for themselves, to speak up, don't be afraid. And who cares what other people think? As long as you're being truthful, that's all that matters to me. That's great. So tell me, what are your thoughts on BLM? Love it? Okay. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I wanted to give you a laugh at the end. I think I know um, the answer. Given what you're saying about the family earlier, but why don't we, for anybody who's not, who might be new to our channel, yeah. um, we think about the organization, Black Lives Matter. Uh, the organization is no different than the previous organizations that have utilized Black people as pawns politically and for, uh, you know, for money. Um, so, for example, Al Sharpton, um, he is the creme de la creme as far as, uh, you know, taking advantage of Black death and making profit off of it, um, showing up when he needs to show up and, you know, pointing the finger at white people. And then behind the scenes, he goes and hangs out with the Clintons and all the rest of the Democrat political establishment while making millions of dollars and uh, also, uh, you know, avoiding taxes. But, um, you know, to me, they're no different. It's the, it's the same game that has been played over and over um, within the grievous industry. Um, and I bring up the grievous industry also to kind of bring it back to um, the civil rights era. You know, the way I compare it is, if you think about it, the civil rights era was a group of people who protested, who boycotted, who did all of these different things, brought attention to a problem that maybe other people didn't realize was such a, a uh, an issue that was happening for Black Americans, and leveraged their leveraged their advocacy against the federal government to do something about it, and that basically got one of the strongest governments in, in, you know, in the world to get up and reverse these particular rules and these laws that were unconstitutional in the first place mm -hmm. and to abide by the constitution for what it actually is. What, with doing that comes power. So now you've created this industry, you've created all these people who protest all the time, who are in an uproar, what do you do with that energy? And if you yeah. allow that to go in the wrong hands, you know, like the, um, uh, what's his name? Um, what's his name, Jackson, uh, why is his name? It's getting my head right now. Jesse Jackson? Jesse Jackson, thank you. I was about to say Jimmy Jackson, that didn't sound right at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you allow someone like Jesse Jackson to take advantage of that, especially after Martin Luther King's death. Uh, his assassination, to take that energy and that new grievance, that power, and use it for his own financial benefit, his own political benefit. Because I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but I believe it was in the early 80s, he ran for president, um, you know, under the Democrat ticket. He was already politically affiliated. He had a lot of, uh, he had a lot of power. And he only had that power because of the remnants of the civil rights era. 
and the notion of white oppression against black people and being pro-black. And he's one of the people that forced the idea that we should be called African-Americans as well. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we say African-American has much to do with him. And that shows you how much power he had to convince yeah. us all that that is the proper way in the proper context to refer to black people. So with that power being being earned, it just trickled down. You, you haven't been able to stop that industry. The grievous industry has been going. It's been a rolling train. Yes. And it's the same BLM thing with feminism. Yeah. Right. Yep. The same thing with the women's movement as the civil rights movement and the and the gay rights movement. It's sort of you have these, like you you called it, an energy. Yeah. That has at at the beginning maybe has some specific concrete goals, like measurable end goals. We're right. going to get rid of of these unconstitutional laws, for example, mm-hmm. that promote inequality inequality of access, and then they achieve those goals. And then the energy and the organizations are all still there. And it just, it can be so easily, I think, at that point, taken and moved towards something negative. And that happened with the women's movement. Yeah. Yeah. I remember because initially, wasn't it it initially about uh, voting? Yes. Well, they've, in, in the women's movement, they divided into what they call waves. So first wave feminism, they was about suffrage and women being able to vote. And then second wave feminism was what what they called it was more about social equality and this idea that women can enter the workforce and don't need to be homemakers and sort of remaking the idea of 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 what the gender roles are Mm -hmm. and and then the third wave was happening when i was in college and when i was in getting indoctrinated and it was more about um pushing back on on more of the beauty standards and that's when the the, what you call the body positivity movement arose And now it's just in this chaotic place where some people call it fourth wave, some people call it intersectional feminism, I call it social justice feminism. It's in this, where it's now gone to, it's, it's so far apart from what it started from that first wave about, about something that was concrete, let's get the right yeah. to vote. And now it's about, there's no such thing as biological sex and there's no difference at all between men and women. And it's a, it's a really... A dark place now, I would say. And it's all about, as you describe it, grievance, grievance culture. It's all about if there's any, if I have a problem and I'm mm-hmm. a woman, sexism is to blame. Right. Some somehow, some way. Right. And that's the that's the <laughs> conspiracy mindset. Because, like, uh, who is it? I think it's uh Robin D'Angelo. It's not a matter of yeah. if racism occurred, it's about how it occurred, or something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah they say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a very conspiratorial mindset. That'd be like if I said it's not a matter of how the government was involved, <laughs> but yes. when was the government involved? <laughs> um, I would sound equally as crazy, um, although today it seems more and more true. But... <laughs> I'm going to write that on my wall. It's not yeah. a matter of get one of those signs. <laughs> right. So a lot of it is very conspiratorial thinking, and I, I really think that there's something uh, Americans... I don't. I, I say American because I'm American, but maybe other people from other countries. We like a a little bit of a good conspiracy, right? Yeah. It's something a little bit. I don't want to say fun, but interesting. About you know, was the JFK assassination the deep state? 
you know, was uh, 9-11, was it an inside job? You know, there's a, there's a little bit of maybe, you know, we'll dive into that a little bit, but we don't realize these other things that have become mainstream are also very conspiratorial. Yes. Was new Coke just a marketing ploy to get us to double down <laughs> on our love of regular Coke? Which just came out that that was true. <laughs> Wait, so they made a bad product, so we were, we would love the old product more. Yes, that's ingenious. Yes, there's a marketing guy who just came out and said that 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 happened. That they came out <laughs> with new Coke so that we would all demand regular Coke. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry, Adam. No, Take it's okay. Off track. Taking us off track. So, um, so to answer your ultimate question, yeah. I'm not a fan of BLM. <laughs> You're not a fan of BLM. No. <laughs> um, can you well, tell I'm going to ask a more personal question and then mm -hmm. I'm not going to keep you here forever today, but I appreciate you so much lending yeah. your time and your Absolutely. insights. Um, in this transformation that you've undergone and the way you view the world and the government and other things, what has been what have been some of the personal changes that you've that you, that have happened to you? What are some of the most positive things? Um, a bunch, a bunch. You know, when you start embracing, um, well, all right. Let me let me say this. I started not only politically, but like personally looking at certain things and challenging myself in certain things. Yes. And uh, I would say, funny enough, right around the time that. I met my fiance is right around the time that I started exploring masculinity and the traits of masculinity and listening to other men talk about it and understanding uh, male to female dynamics and embracing the strengths of being a man. And like I said, I, I grew up without my father and I realized that uh, in some ways I grew out of certain, what you would say more uh, feminine traits uh, you know, being very sensitive. Um, you know, I was a very sensitive kid. Um, and growing up in that particular way, I saw how it manifested in my relationships with women. Uh, you know, and and also the other thing, I think a lot of people don't realize how men believe in the feminist concept too. So I believed in the 50-50, you know, relationship. And we're equals and we operate in this yeah. particular way. And it never really worked out because naturally there's something about women wanting to respect the man that they're with, but how do you respect a guy who is pedestalizing you? Right? So it, it's, it's stuff that I never really thought about and I never really fully understood. And I started exploring that. And coincidentally, I started exploring that along with my new relationship with my fiance and we would watch a lot of online content and I would watch it with her and we would have some of the best moments where we're watching something that's pretty controversial. You know, the feminists would say, this is, this is downright misogyny, you know, and then I'm watching it with her and we would press pause and she's like, let's talk about this. And we would, we would sit there and talk for an hour about that one particular thing and go back and forth and just being blunt with each other. And, that led for her to also change. She started embracing femininity. She started looking up femininity content. And 
and um, being more conscious about how feminine she is. And granted, it's not like she was extremely masculine, but she wanted to shed as much masculine traits that as she had, uh, because in many ways she grew up similar to me. She didn't grow up with her father either. So she had some things that were affected by that too. So here I am becoming more masculine and more secure and more confident in myself. And here she is becoming more feminine and more confident in herself and more relaxed. Mm -hmm. You know, her previous relationship, she took on a masculine role, not willingly, but that's what turned out to be. She was the sole breadwinner. He wasn't working and she absolutely hated it. She wasn't built for that. Her personally, she wasn't built for that. She didn't want that. For me, I want that. I want yeah. that responsibility. I want that role. And to me, that is a gift that I can give to my future wife if I'm able to say that if you want to work, you can work, but you don't have to work. Your money is not essential. And that relieves the burden off of her. And she's able to do the roles that she feels more comfortable doing. Um, and, and there's one particular moment where uh, we moved in together and I tried what I always did, the 50-50 thing. I clean up, you clean up, you know, I do this, you do this, but I'm not nearly as tidy as she is or consistent as she is. And her coming home from work and seeing that I didn't clean up yet or something like that, where she would get legitimately pissed off. It got to a point where she was saying, you know what, I'm going to do this yeah. and you don't have to worry about it. And I, and it took me a little bit. I'm like, no, no, no. Like I'm thinking she's doing this out of anger, but she had to explain to me, I'm doing this because I want to take on this particular role. And that's when I realized that, okay, she's setting the boundaries for our relationship. This is her role. I have zero expectation to clean up. If I clean up, that's my choice, but there's zero expectation. However, my role, I have certain roles within our relationship. And that's when I started realizing the importance of, of gender roles, if you want to say within a particular relationship. Every relationship is different. Mm -hmm. The dynamic is different, but I took on a more traditional and she took on a more traditional. And right now we're working, uh, you know, about 50, 50, but my, my objective is for that to be lopsided purposefully. I, yeah. you know, we're talking about having a child and if we're able to do that, I want to be in a position economically where she doesn't have to worry about working, you know, a nine to five. These are very traditional things. And these are things that I, I started embracing within the past couple of years. And it's a personal transformation for myself. So the more masculine I've become and part of the masculinity, uh, or at least healthy masculinity, it's being confident. And for a majority of my life, I was not very confident. I was unsure of myself. I questioned, you know, am I good enough at this? You know, do they like me? And, and, and I, you know, it doesn't lend well when you have relationships with women and women want a man who is confident and it doesn't waver. Yes. So me having There's nothing more attractive yes. than confidence. Exactly. And conf confidence is not the same thing as a big ego at all. Right. Right. It's just sure of yourself. You're not questioning yeah. yourself. And and if I wasn't confident, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. It's the, the simplest way because I'll be worried about what would people say? Are they going to like it? You know, for me, people liking the book is a bonus. I wrote it for myself. I believe in myself. I'm confident in myself. And that's allowed for me to now people are, are um, wanting me to speak in person. 
you know, tomorrow I fly out to Wisconsin. I'm going to be speaking on stage again with James Lindsay and, and other great oh, that's speakers. Great. Yeah. Um, and I, I did that you know, a month or so ago. If I didn't have that confidence, granted, I was a little bit nervous because I've never done it before, but I would have been horrible. I've been questioning the words that are coming out of my mouth and not believing in what I want to say, but I, I'm confident. I'm not worried. I, I know, I know that what it, whatever is going to happen is meant to happen. And there is a religious aspect to, to it as yes. well. You know, God is by me. He's by my side. He's always been by my side, but it was just, it was about recognizing and understanding that was the case. And once I realized that, it almost coincided with my self-confidence. I realized that I have faith in God. I have faith in myself equally. And no matter what happens, I'll be fine. Yeah. That's beautiful, Adam. Thank you. No problem. Um, so thank you for your time here today. Thank you yeah. for uh, the benefit of your wisdom and can we? Can you tell everyone? We're going to put it in the description too, but tell everyone where they can find you online, and if they're interested in booking you to speak. Yeah, so um, you can go to wrongspeak.net. Uh, you can fill out the contact form there. Um, I'm on Twitter. My DMs are open. Anybody who wants to talk, they can reach out to me. Uh, you, my uh, handle is at wrong underscore speak. Um, on Facebook, I have a like page. So it's facebook.com slash Coleman writes. Um, also you can go to the wrong speak publishing Facebook like page. So I have two of them. Um, you can go to Amazon and purchase the book from there. If that's easy for you, if you are anti big tech and you don't want to purchase from Amazon, um, you can go to wrongspeak.net and purchase directly from me. I'll ship it out to you. I'm also uh, shipping out signed copies as well. Um, so yeah, that's those are the simplest ways of reaching out to me. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Adam. Thank you. And good luck tomorrow. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to its thinky talk. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and will be recycled as part of our sustainability program. Here's a fun fact, there is literally no downside to unreserved obedience. We are not violent. But I would like to remind you that we have nukes and F-15s. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job.
thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.